Hello, my name is Philip Mirton, and today we are going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution, to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. Now, today we have a special show because we have Greg Braden on the show, who I've been looking forward to, to talking to. And before we get Greg on the show and, and talk a little bit about the deep truth, I want to mention a book that was published in 1962 by philosopher of science Thomas Kuhn. Now, this book, which at the time I believe was called an essay, is called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions sort of a big title there, but this essay was one of the most influential science books in the 20th century. And the reason is because it, it talks about that what we call science is really normal science in his mind. Uh, Kuhn defines normal science as problem solving or puzzle solving within the existing scientific paradigm. Uh, but over time, anomalies arise, events that don't fit the existing paradigm. Often these anomalies are ignored and shunted off to the side. An example in today's modern scientific paradigm might be the paranormal, where we have a lot of evidence there, there's such a thing as the paranormal, mind over matter, telepathy, clairvoyance, but those facts don't fit the scientific paradigm, so they are chiefly ignored. But over time, the anomalies increase and science enters a time of crisis. A new paradigm emerges that explains what were once considered anomalies and a new worldview arises. And this is revolutionary science. And so Thomas Kuhn made this distinction between normal science and revolutionary science. Now today we have many writers and thinkers arguing that the time is here to create a new paradigm. Now, some of this thinking is coming from paranormal researchers, such as Dean Radin and Charles Tart. Some of it's coming from the new consciousness wing, perhaps ex as exemplified by Amatka Swamy. And then we have biologists and medical professionals, such as Bruce Lipton and others, who are calling for the need for a new paradigm. Now, one of the leaders in opening our eyes and minds to the weaknesses in our current worldview and the need to expand our horizon is today's guest, as I mentioned, Greg Braden. Now, Greg is one guest who may need no introduction, but I'm going to give one anyway, so those who have not uh, heard of Greg or are familiar with his works can understand a little bit about his background. First of all, uh, following successful careers at Phillips Petroleum, Martin Marietta, and Cisco Systems, where, uh, by the way, he he led the development of a global support team that ensures the reliability of today's internet. Greg left the corporate world to go off on his own and write. And for more than 25 years, he's searched high mountain villages, remote monasteries, and forgotten texts to uncover their timeless secrets. His work is featured on, at, at such places as the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, the Sci-Fi Channel, ABC, and NBC. To date, Greg's discoveries have led to such paradigm-shattering books, such as the 
Isaiah Effect, The God Code, The Divine Matrix, and Fractal Time, and his newest book, Deep Truth, Igniting the Memory of Our Origins, History, Destiny, and Fate. His work has been published in 17 languages and 33 countries, and it's my pleasure to welcome Greg to the show. Greg, thank you for being with us today. Oh, Philip, I am so honored to be on the program. I'm thrilled to be with our audience today. And, you know, uh, thank you for that beautiful introduction. And my sense is that uh, although we have a full program together, that our time is going to go by very, very quickly today. <laughs> I just yeah. had that feeling. Yeah, well, uh, in, in, in reading your books, and, I, and I, was, I, I was telling Greg earlier that I've actually listened to two or three of his books uh, in my car, which is one way to multitask, by the way. And I and I and he reads very well. His you know he he reads his own books, and so I feel like I like I know you a little bit. Um, so first of all, let's let's get started. In in your newest book, Deep Truth, you you make a point of 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 putting front and center this threshold question of who are we, and and can you speak to a little bit about why you chose to to put that big question as sort of the theme of your newest book. I would love to speak about that. And if it's all right with you, Philip, I'm going to back up about a half a step and just talk about why the book was written and that title was chosen, and that will segue right into the answer of the question that you've just asked. you okay if we do it that way? Sure. The the, the title of the book, Deep Truth, uh, the full title, Igniting the Memory of Our Origin, History, Destiny and Fate. Uh, it was released in October of 2011, so it, it's been out just uh, just under a year. And, you know, uh, Philip, one of the first things that, that I discovered when I was touring with the book was uh, that the word truth that's in the title of the book, it means different things, different people. And for some people, it actually uh, pushed some buttons, and they would ask me, you know, what, Greg, what gives you the, the right to put the word truth in the title of your book, and, and isn't that presumptuous? So I'd like to share where that title comes from. Uh, the, the book, this book came about a little differently than books of the past. Uh, typically, I choose a title for a book, uh, and then I write to support that title. Hmm. This book was almost complete, and it had no official title. It had some working titles. But it had no official title. I'd wake up in the morning, and I'd say, you know, <laughs> what am I going to call my book? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, of course, the publisher was really interested in the title because they said, how can we let people know about a book that doesn't have a name? Yeah, it helps have a title. So, well, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, it, was, it was toward the end of the book. I was reading a, a, a biography um, uh, of Albert Einstein, uh, doing some research for, for uh, some of the ideas in the book. And I came across a conversation that Albert Einstein was having with a, a colleague, a scientific colleague of his in the mid 20th century, who was also a friend at the same time, uh, and it was Niels Bohr, the, um, uh, the Nobel Prize winning physicist of the 20th century, and it was in the mid-1940s, and it was, it was during a time very similar to what we're living right now, when new discoveries were being published uh, on a monthly basis that were overturning uh, what were previously believed to be the deepest truths of science and, and us, describing us, our relationship to the world, to one another, to our past, and the way we solve our problems. Niels Bohr made a statement, and the statement was so profound. Uh, I'll just share the, the statement. It was a quote. He said, it is the hallmark of any deep truth that its negation is also a deep truth, end of quote. 
when I, I read that, uh, it was just so profound. What he was saying was that when new discoveries overturn what science has previously told us were the deepest truths of, of our lives and our existence, then the new discoveries themselves become the new deep truths. And when I read that, I said, that's got to be the title for this book, because the purpose of the book was to share new scientific discoveries that are overturning 150 years of the scientific story of us, our relationship to our bodies, our relationship to the world, our relationship to the past, the way we solve our problems, uh, life and civilization itself. So those new discoveries exist. And I, I believed initially that uh, everyone would be really happy to know that those discoveries exist. And what I found is that there is a reluctance, Philip, and in some cases an outright resistance in the mainstream to share these new discoveries. So when I say mainstream, this is mainstream television, mainstream documentaries, uh, mainstream classrooms, mainstream textbooks. And I, I just have to, to pause briefly when we talk about classrooms and textbooks. We're talking about teachers. And I want to be very, very clear. It's not the teacher's fault. In the United States of America, uh, the way this works is that each teacher in public schools is bound by a covenant within the state that they, they teach. They can only share in the classroom curricula that's been approved by the school board. So if the school board has not approved the teaching and the sharing of the newest peer-reviewed science, then the teachers are bound to teach now what, by definition, is obsolete science. So this would be important at any time, and I would be passionate about it at any time. It's vital right now because of the context. The context is that the best minds of our time are telling us in no uncertain terms that these days, uh, this generation, this time, we are facing a time unlike any in 5,000 years of human history, that, that we are facing the greatest number of crises, and each crisis is of the greatest magnitude ever to converge into this little window of time that we're calling now. Never have so many people been asked to solve such big problems in such a short period of time. And that's where these discoveries are so vital, because it is the thinking of the past that has led to the breakdown of the familiar systems of life uh, that are leading to the crisis, the, the crises that we're seeing now, that the economic crisis is on everyone's mind. It's, it's the consequence of a way of thinking we'll explore in this program that we now know is, is obsolete. Uh, breakdown of corporate systems, the, the, the depletion of vital resources um, it, that are, are in finite supply in our world right now, uh, the way we deal with climate change. These are just some of the examples of, of the crises that we're, we're facing right now. So it would be important at any time to understand the, the deepest truths of our existence. It's vital now because if we solve these big problems using the same thinking that created the problems in the first place, we know where that's going to lead because it's the world we're living right now. So this is, this is the background for the book. And and then answer your question. It was a very good question to begin with. The way that we answer a single question is the it's the basis for every choice that we'll ever make, every decision that we'll ever make. It's it's the the foundation of every crisis that ever crossed our paths, personally and collectively. The way 
that we answer a single question, and you just ask that question, Philip, and the question is, as individuals, we must determine for ourselves the answer to the question, who am I? And because there are so many of us in this world, the question becomes, who are we? The way we answer this question provides the lens through which we see ourselves and our relationship to the world and the lens through which we choose the solutions to the problems that cross our paths. So up until recently, the way that we have answered the question, who am I, has been through the lens of science, 150 years of scientific thinking that has answered a number of, of key questions about us and our relationship to the world. And now that we know that that science is based upon false assumptions, the new discoveries are giving us very good reasons to build a new lens through which to see ourselves and our relationship to the world and, and answer these these questions in sustainable ways that provide sustainable kinds of solutions in our world. So this is what I'd like to talk about uh, today is is some of the, the false assumptions of science, um, what the new discoveries are telling us and how we can apply those uh, in our lives. But yeah. this is why this question, it's a deceptively simple question, Philip, who am I? Right. Who am I? If we really stop to think about this, and if we're honest with ourselves, every one of us, either subconsciously or, or often very consciously, uh, use the way we answer this question as the basis for all the choices we make in our lives, the choices of job, careers, relationships, how we live our lives, uh, where we choose to place our energy, what our pursuits are for, uh, for joy and, uh, as well as for career. All these things are based on the way we think of ourselves and our relationship to the world. So this is why it is such a very vital question. Yeah, and I, I think that it's, it's important here in my own mind that, that we're talking about, to me, a multi-tiered crisis. In the past, we have had economic crisis. We've had wars. We've had terrorism. Uh, you know, uh, global warming, as you point out in one of your books, is something that comes and goes you know, uh, throughout geological history. And the question about whether it's man-accelerated or not is an interesting question. But, but I think that, that what, to me, is important about your book and, and, and your emphasis on, on deep truth is the deep part of it is that there, to me, there is a crisis in the soul of mankind, of humankind. There is a crisis, and, and, and I think the question of who are we gets to that point, because fundamentally, we have to perceive the world in only one way, and that's through our own eyes, and that's through our own, our own um, attitudes, and, and as you say, lens, which I think is a great way to put it. And, and, and so, to me, what we're facing, this is why I started off with the scientific revolution. I mean, we're talking, at least in my mind, about a change in mindset. We're moving from sort of a paradigm where we maybe are considered to be either machines or descendants from amoeba or, or some kind of random acts of, of, of an impersonal creation. You know, we're moving from this, this sort of uh, self-reflection that appears to be inadequate into a broader view of who we are and who we can be. That's well, sort of I, absolutely. I, and I think you, you've just uh, described it so beautifully, Philip. And 
in every civilization, there are what are called the perennial questions uh, that must be answered. Uh, up until 1859, our perennial questions were answered largely in the spiritual and religious communities and, and through the Catholic Church. 1859, Charles Darwin took the first stab at, at trying to answer some of the questions beyond the realm of, uh, of the spiritual community. So these, these questions, if uh, our listeners in their mind, if you can think, uh, visualize an inverted pyramid, uh, so the point is at the bottom, and that's where the first, the most fundamental question of the perennial questions comes from, and it is the origin of life. Where does life come from? And just above that is the next question, where does human life come from? Above that is the question, what is our relationship to our bodies? Above that, what is our relationship to the world? Above that, what is our relationship to the past? And above that is how do we solve our problems? The false assumptions of science have led us to believe that we live in a world where life is random, it's a random occurrence, the origin of human life is random, that we are separate and powerless from our own bodies, that we are separate and independent from the world around us, that history and civilization is a one-way deal. It's a linear, uh, a linear experience that has happened one time and that we are at the pinnacle uh, of sophistication when it comes to, uh, to the technology of civilization. And all of this has contributed to the belief that the way we solve our problems is through competition, violent competition and conflict, that we live in a finite world uh, where there's a single pie and everybody's got to fight for that piece of the, the pie. It's a world of scarcity. So the consequences of these false assumptions is the world that we're living in now, where we're seeing, and, and you, you identified this so beautifully, we've, we've all been through crises before, and we've, we've not only survived, we've transcended. We've come out better on the other end of the crises. Typically, they are one-at-a-time kinds of crises, the Great Depression, you know, World War I, World War II, um, you know, the, uh, the, the Cold War years, the Cuban Missile Crisis, these, these kinds of things. One of the things that makes our time so different is that we are living a time of multiple nested crises. So they are uh, simultaneous, multiple simultaneous nested crises, many things are unraveling in the same period of time, and, and some of them are related to one another. The, the war, for example, that uh, I think many of us feel is, is brewing over the Middle East. Uh, it certainly is a war that never need happen, and unless circumstances change, it's a war that may very possibly happen. It is directly linked to the economic crisis, uh, the collapsing economies of the world. It's directly linked to the energy crisis and the depletion of, uh, uh, of oil, because we've based our economies on uh, on oil, even though there are other other forms, other sources of energy that are out there. So, so one of the things that makes our time unique is the fact, and it is a fact, that we are are living the convergence of multiple nested simultaneous crises, and that's never happened before on, on the magnitude that we're we're experiencing right now. Yeah, and I and I think that it is apparent from the interest in many books written in this area and I think that you know uh, your books are a, are a very good example of this area where you because you write in a very conversational um, sort of easy to understand uh, 
tone and you have your your reader's interest in mind and and you are presenting these ideas and and the popularity of of your books and many others in this area shows to me that we have people searching for meaning or searching for an answer and i i can't help but think that that the answer which there which i I have a belief that there is one is going to be a deep answer. It's got to be mm-hmm. something that will unite people at a deeper level, because we're because we're not making it on the surface very well. As long as well, I, it, you know, yeah, I, I agree. I agree, Philip. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I, no. I was going to say. I was going to say. It's sort of like it's sort of like you know, um, a football game where everyone bangs each other's heads around, and but at the end of the day, they're part of the same league, and they have to keep the league going. They have to keep the the you know the bottom line. Uh, context alive the 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 game alive and and we forget so often uh, that that in my mind that what we have in common uh, is much greater than what separates us and and so uh, I also want to highlight something else you said and you said a lot so I'm gonna miss some things here but but your your emphasis on textbooks is so incredibly important because because the textbooks are really sort of expressing the current paradigm. And so unless those textbooks are rewritten or changed or modified, you know, what do we do? I mean, Greg, Greg, have you, have you considered, uh, the, you know, the textbook problem? What do you think the, the solution there well, is? Well, I certainly have. I'm, uh, and I'm not alone in this. I'm in a number of, of organizations, leadership groups, things like that, with uh, some of the people that I, I consider to be the greatest greatest minds, uh, the greatest thinkers, and have the most beautiful hearts uh, that are living in, in the world today. I'm sure some of them have been your guests in the past. And one of the things that, that's very apparent is that, you know, when we talk about books, books, um, it's not about the books, it's about the information. And we live in uh, a couple of generations where we were accustomed to sharing information through the written word, through the books. I think we all recognize that's becoming obsolete right now. One of the problems with a book is that when an idea is committed to a book, it's locked in to uh, uh, the words that were written at a a moment in time. And often uh, it's it's a year to a year and a half before that book ever sees uh, the, the broad general public, and a lot can happen in that year or year and a half, and especially in, in the, the world of transition we're living in now. Yeah. So it's very possible that by the time the book is published, what was written can become either uh, less accurate or in some cases it's made obsolete. And what uh, what I believe we're seeing, the part of this revolution, uh, one of the good things that's happening is the in the digital revolution, I think more of the textbooks have become living documents, living digital textbooks that can be changed uh, on the fly to reflect and accurately portray the paradigm uh, of the reader, of our young people, yeah. rather than locking up in these, these ideas uh, of the way something works or the way a problem is solved with data that's going to be obsolete yeah. in a year or a year and a half. So this is one of the, the places where I think we're, gonna, we're seeing a tremendous revolution I think we'll always have some textbooks around, but I think the the, the role they've played in our, our classrooms in the past, uh, we're seeing change very quickly, and I think it's a good thing. Yeah, I think that's, it, I think that's it, a really good observation. Yeah, I mean, it means, it means that we, we can actually disseminate in the classrooms um, very quickly 
state-of-the-art current information that changes everything about the way young people think about themselves, their relationship to the world, the stumbling block has been the the approval through the school boards. And, and I mentioned specifically um, the United States because it is not it doesn't work this way in every country in the world. As I've toured the world, what I've found is uh, that other countries, teachers are given much more responsibility. I, I don't know if I'm going to use the word freedom, but I'm going to say the word responsibility to share accurate and current information with their students. And it is the responsibility of the, uh, of the teacher to do that. So uh, all that is, is changing. All that's part of the mix. Yeah. And what I, I think I'd like to do, Philip, if you're okay with this, in the interest of time, can I you okay if I identify five of the key false assumptions that are being shared in the classroom today, currently, they were shared when I was in school back in the 60s and 70s, and, and that means they're probably, uh, they were shared for many of our listeners as well. Well, it's perfect so if, because if I, that was going to be my next question I, I, uh, about the assumptions because I am personally very um, sort of interested in the false, in, in the whole concept of assumptions. So that was going to be my next question. My, my, only, uh, my only sort of point I want to make right now is that in uh, this past past weekend my my daughter came home and she said you know and once in a while we'll, we'll watch a movie she's 13 years old she says well i saw some clips of the dead poet society can we watch a dead poet society and so you know it's a 19 i think it's 1989 movie with with robin williams and that whole movie is about about kids thinking for themselves and and about and about challenging authority and so we, so we really have sort of when you think about it we we have a conflict in 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 schooling which always always sort of resolves itself the conflict being we have these things called textbooks um and but then we the better teachers i think encourage kids to think for themselves and even to challenge authority you know and and so and so it's to to me it they go together they go together because I like the idea that the digital revolution is 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 updating these textbooks in a more timely fashion. But I think at the bottom line, we have to encourage kids, people to think for themselves, to read your books, to perhaps read my book, read others' books in this area, and figure it out for themselves. So that's my little my little sure. three cents. Well, I that. agree, and that's that's where the relevance comes from, and that's where young people get really uh, impassioned ab about what they're experiencing in school when it actually fits and makes sense into the world around them. When, when the disconnect is there, when what, what they're reading in the textbooks doesn't seem to have any place in their lives, right. you know, the question is why spend their time reading it? And that's, it's a good question. Right. So I, I think that's where this all really comes together uh, for our young people and for adults. And, and the, the reason is because adults are the ones that are in power right now in our political system, uh, in the, the economic system, certainly in, in the media. Uh, adults are the ones that are making the decisions uh, that determine how information is shared and, and what we see. And many of those adults are from the era where the false assumptions of science that we're about to share uh, provide the foundation for the way we think of ourselves and our relationship to the world. Um, these false assumptions are the lens that we all grew up with. Right. So let me just, I'm going to run through these okay. very quickly. Sure. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to run through them. 
uh, and zero in on, on a couple of these that um, I think are probably wreaking the greatest havoc in our our lives and our world today, and the new discoveries that that tell us where these are false. So does that sound like a good way? Yeah, to yeah. Do no, this? no. I was going to ask you for the because because I think that that is a a very compelling part of of your book, The Deep Truth. So let's let's go through the the, the five assumptions sure. or the six assumptions. Okay. That, so that you've so what I'm going to say to our, our listeners, if you're taking notes, and I know a lot of listeners do. I want to emphasize every one of these I'm about to share with you is now known to be scientifically false. It is a false assumption. It's not my opinion, and it's not speculation. Peer-reviewed science, uh, accepted science in the scientific circles are telling us that these ideas are false. They're simply not being disseminated in the mainstream. So for some people, this is new information. For others, uh, they've probably heard some of these things before. So first false assumption, number one, uh, no surprise, it's a Darwinian assumption regarding evolution. Uh, We're being taught, I was taught when I was in school, our young people there being taught that evolution explains life in general and human life specifically. The problem is the data simply does not support the assumption. The physical data doesn't support the assumption. And now the new genetic data, the DNA research, is telling us very clearly that Darwin's ideas of evolution cannot explain uh, human existence. Now, I, I don't know what the answer is. Um, I've got my, you know, my personal theories and speculations, but scientifically, I don't know what the answer is. What I know is that what we're being taught as fact cannot support the the information. Uh, and my feeling is, I'm not saying that we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. If we want to teach the old theories in the classroom, that's fine. Allow the teachers to teach the new new theories, to share the new discoveries alongside the existing theories so that our young people have the full toolbox of information as they embark in in their lives um, to to try to find the answers for themselves. So what's happening right now, and this is a good place to start, um, in the United States of America, teachers are losing, tenured professors are losing their jobs because they even mention that there are alternative theories to Darwin's ideas in the classroom. And I'm not talking about creationist theories. And I'm not talking about religion. There are viable scientific theories and, uh, and discoveries that support them that are not being shared in the classroom today. So the first false assumption, number one, is that evolution explains life and human life. The data simply doesn't support it. That's a good False one. assumption. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I was, I was going to say that's a, that's a real good one. And, and, it, and, I can't help but ask, what what do you think is the leading competitor right now to Darwinianism? Well, we we don't know what happened, but right. what we do know, and I talk about this in more detail in the book, yeah. is that the DNA analysis, uh, first of all, comparing modern human DNA to, uh, to some of the, the recovered DNA from beings that are supposed to be our ancestors. Right. Is clear, clearly showing that the old, there's not enough overlap to show that we descended from those ancestors. And, and if, in fact, what it's showing is that we shared the Earth with those ancestors, such as, as Neanderthal. Yes. So if we shared the Earth with them, we couldn't have descended from them. Yes. But the, the really interesting study, uh, studies are showing that the, the DNA that makes us human, uh, such as human chromosome number two, the genes uh, within human chromosome number two that allow us to, to have the human, human characteristics that we do, what our own geneticists are saying is they could not have formed and fused 
under natural conditions. Evolution does not support the uh, the development of human chromosome 2, for example. And there are others, but this is one I'm, I'm focusing on right now. Uh, I don't know what did happen. Right. And for that reason, I think it's important to share what the new DNA discoveries are showing, that, that evolution cannot explain. I'll just be really clear. I was trained as a geologist. My, my degree is in geology and earth sciences. Evolution is a fact in the geologic record. We see it for some forms of animal life. We see it for some forms of plant life. Um, it does not support what we see in terms of human uh, emergence. Humans, modern humans emerged about 200,000 years ago in the bodies that we have today. If you compare our bodies today to those uh, of modern human, it's called anatomically modern human, 200,000 years ago, you can't tell them apart. The, yes. the, the brain size is the same, cranial capacity is the same, body proportions are the same. So I don't know exactly what did happen, but what I know is that Darwin's ideas that are being required, uh, that are now required teaching in the school, don't support the evidence that is now being recovered in the 21st century. And, and I think it's, it's an honest and fair thing to do to share the new discoveries in the classroom with, with our young people. Yeah, and I, I, I so, just want to emphasize how important this is to the listeners. What, what Greg is saying here is that he's not saying that, therefore, intelligent design should be taught alongside Darwinism, nor is he saying that evolution is completely wrong. I think what you're saying is there are some mysteries, questions. It doesn't explain everything. Science knows it doesn't explain everything, so why don't we teach the mystery? Why don't well, we? Absolutely, right? absolutely. You know, what I've found in young people that... Um, I've had the opportunity to share some of this information in classrooms. Young people actually like knowing that all the mysteries have yet to be solved. They like knowing that it's possible for them to contribute to yeah. what we know about ourselves and, and solving some of the deepest mysteries of, of humankind. And, uh, and that's where uh, you know, a lot of this kind of information comes in. But this, this is the first false assumption. It's an important one, um, but it's not the only one. So okay. false assumption number one, evolution explains life and human life is what I was taught when I was in school. It's being taught in our class, required teaching in, in our scientific uh, um, classes today. The data simply doesn't support it. False assumption number two uh, is with regard to civilization itself. We're taught today that civilization is about 5,000 years old, that it began with ancient Sumeria in the Mesopotamian Valley, uh, that it's a one-time deal, that we went from primitive to the advanced civilization and technology that we see today. The problem is, that, again, the data simply does not support this. I, I personally have documented archaeological sites of advanced civilizations, uh, some of them over twice as old as what we're being led to believe. We're, we're talking about into the end of the last ice age. Um, if we can acknowledge that humans have lived through cycles of civilization rather than uh, this linear development, then it means that people in the past had challenges in their lives, and climate change is among those, very similar to what we're living now. If we have the wisdom to learn from them, maybe we can apply some of what they learned to our solutions and we don't make the same mistakes they've made in the past. But I'm going to come back to this. This is going to be very important uh, before the end of this conversation. When we begin talking about war and the, the role of war in the history of solving problems, and if our listeners have not read the book, I think they're going to hear something very shocking. It's not taught in the classrooms. 
uh, but it makes all the difference in the world in, in terms of how we solve our problems. So false assumption number two, civilization began about 5,000 years ago. The data doesn't support it. False assumptions number three and four are actually related uh, through new physics. The first, uh, number three, is that consciousness is somehow separate from our physical world. This is what's being taught in the classrooms today. It's what I was taught, uh, what most of our listeners heard. And uh, false assumption number four is that the space between physical things is empty. The problem, once again, is, is the, the discoveries simply tell us this way of thinking is absolutely wrong. And some of the best minds of our time, uh, John Wheeler, Princeton University, was a colleague of Albert Einstein's. He only died, I think he died in 2008. Yeah. He was one of the leading proponents of, of trying to convince the scientific world that consciousness, not only is it not separate from our physical world, it's the stuff that our physical world emerges from. There's a field of energy that connects all things. And we and consciousness play a, a very powerful role in that field. So the, the question now, and that is a scientific fact that the field exists, the question is now is not whether or not everything is connected. It's to what degree it's connected and what, to what degree we have influence um, within the context of that connection. But if you go to a classroom today, either this isn't addressed at all, or if it is, we're being taught that our thoughts, feelings, emotions, beliefs are completely independent from whatever's happening inside of our bodies and the world around us, and, and the data doesn't support that. Yeah, I have to tell you, um, that I, I think, I think that, that is, to me, the big one. Because, because of, of all the many convergences going on, uh, the, the convergence that appears to be going on between modern physics, and specifically it would be the quantum theory, and, and really Eastern religion, and I would throw in Western idealism in there, Sure. That that there is a role for consciousness, and it's I think that uh, in their book, um, the Quantum Enigma, uh, the authors there, Bruce Rosenblum and Fred Kuntner, they they call it the skeleton in the closet. I'm not sure if it's the skeleton in the closet or or the elephant in the room, but it's it's some it's some metaphor that 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 goes to, you know, about. 50% at least of the leading physicists know that consciousness is intertwined with what we call matter and energy. I mean, well, I mean, it has to be. This, this unified field theory that uh, has been so elusive, you know, physicists have been looking for the unified field theory that, that ties together all of the ideas of physics and what we see happening in the real world for 100 years. Over 100 years now, there's been a search for this unified field theory. The best minds of the planet, the most money from the greatest uh, academic institutions, universities, research organizations, some of the most complex devices ever created by humans to, to find uh, the answers so we can have this unified field theory. If we were on the right track, I think we'd be further along right. than we are right now, and the uh, the string theories that so many people have heard about, we now know that might be a part of the answer. It's not the answer. But interestingly, when we factor consciousness back into the theories, when we write us back into the equations, all of a sudden these theories begin to work out very well. The problem is they fly in the face of 100 years of, of physics, and they're not accepted. So this is it's, it's, another, it's another place... Uh, the consequence of these, these ideas, the space between things is empty. We all know that there is no empty space in nature. But this thinking that is so entrenched 
in our subconsciously in our way of life leads us to believe that what we do in one place has no effect uh, upon what happens somewhere else, yeah. that everything is separate from everything else. And there's, there's a, a whole way of living that stems from that kind of, of thinking uh, that now is changing. But these are, are two of the false assumptions. And, and the fifth false assumption, I'm just going to finish these up, it goes right back to Charles Darwin once again. And it's the last one on this list, Philip, but it may be the most critical in terms of, of what's happening in our lives and our world today. This is Darwin's assumption, and, and I'm just going to share it in Darwin's words. Charles Darwin, in 1859, in his book, uh, on uh, his first book that he published, um, said to us that nature is based upon what he called survival of the strongest. Now, those are his words, and it was later interpreted and translated into survival of the fittest. That has a different meaning. But Darwin believed that the world was based, that nature is based upon what he called survival of the strongest. And this is such a, a very, very dangerous way to think. So I, I'd like to say a few words about Darwin. Sure. Um, it's one of my as, favorite as topics. We, Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, as we explore this, because... Yeah. Uh, and I want to be very clear, I'm not down on Charles Darwin. He was a scientist. I think he was probably a pretty good scientist. In my opinion, and this is my opinion, where Darwin went wrong was he took some observations that he made in nature, in some parts of the world, under some circumstances, and he tried to apply what he saw to all life everywhere, including humans. So in other words, when he looked into nature, a couple of his own examples, when he looked into nature, and he saw a, a one colony of ants that would capture another colony of ants, and rather than kill them, they would make slaves out of them. He believed that what he was seeing in the natural world was a little example of a general rule that applies to all life, including humans. Or when he, when he saw two birds in a nest, they were siblings, in one nest, and another bird would come in, in the instance that he saw, just because... The third bird was different than the first two. That bird was ejected from the nest and left to die. Darwin interpreted that as a law that applies to all life everywhere when, when some, some being is different than the others and doesn't, doesn't conform to the, the expectations of the others. Yes. This is, uh, has been interpreted as a reason for some of the worst atrocities. In, in the modern world. Darwin published his ideas, and I'm, I'm just going to share this. Uh, the, the title of the book, and the reason I hesitated a few minutes ago is because I, I did want to talk about this in more detail, uh, and share the full title. We are all aware that Darwin published a book called The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection in 1859. For many of us, it was required reading in school. If our listeners, if you go on Amazon today, that's the title that comes up. However, it's not the complete title. It's not the full title. In the early 20th century, the remainder of the title was relegated to the inside pages. So they moved the rest of the title to the inside of the book, and when I share the title, uh, it may become obvious as to why that is. So let me just share the, the entire title of the book. Uh, the original title, The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, the rest of the title begins with the word or, capital O-R, or the preservation of favored races 
in the struggle for life. Yes. The preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Yep. And that gives Darwin's ideas a, a whole different vibe. It's a whole different feeling. Yeah. Uh, it tells us two things about Darwin's thinking. Number one, it tells us that Darwin believed that there were favored races uh, that would win out over others. Uh, and number two, that life is a struggle. He believed that life is a struggle. So it was through his lens of those beliefs that he interpreted everything that he saw. Now, in 1859, up until that time, the church had, as we mentioned earlier, had largely been responsible for helping us to understand our relationship to the world. The world was so ready for something beyond the church that Darwin's ideas were embraced quickly without much question, and they became very deeply entrenched into the thinking uh, of his time. So people ask me, they say, okay, Greg, you know, we got it. Maybe Darwin wasn't 100% accurate in his ideas, but, you know, that was 1859. Here we are in the 21st century. So what? You know, what difference does it make? And it's a good question, and and the answer is this. Yes, we are living a a modern world of a very sophisticated technology, no doubt. However, the foundations of the systems that our world is based upon were created in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So we are living the improvements of systems that were created during Darwin's time when these ideas were so popular. And the idea, survival of the strongest, is so deeply entrenched into our world and our lives today. And and the new discoveries, I'm going to share the new discoveries that tell us why this thinking uh, no longer applies, why it's incorrect. But those ideas are at the basis of the crises that we're living, the economic crisis, the collapse of the world's economic systems. It is collapsing. They are collapsing because they're based on the false assumption of survival of the strongest. The collapse of, of the corporate systems, the way that we're solving our problems between nations leading to the wars of the 20th century and the big one over the Middle East right now, the way we're dealing with the depletion of vital resources, all of this is happening through the lens of the way that we think of ourselves and our relationship to the world, the world of scarcity and survival of the strongest, and the data simply doesn't support it. Yeah, and I, I want to I wanna add here that, uh, first of all, in my own view, The Origin of the Species is one of the best science books ever written, and I think that that is, that is one of the, the reasons why it's, it's, it's had such an incredible influence. It's very well, it's very well written very well researched but Darwin himself in that book showed something that many modern biologists don't or neo-Darwinians don't and that is Darwin showed some humility Darwin recognized for example as I think as you point out Greg in in your book that there were gaps in the fossil record he realized that things like the evolution of the eye were a bit weird you know it's pretty hard to explain how how an eye evolved um, he also had great doubts over the origin of life from the dust. But today, if you read books by Richard Dawkins or, or, or others of that category, it's as if Darwin has now been propped up and his, and his book engraved in stone, so you really can't question it. And I think that that has, that has two effects. And you already pointed out the, the difficulty of a, of a science teacher today teaching something that challenges Darwin. To me, that is, that is not the way science is supposed to be um, uh, delivered. 
but but in addition we have we have this this competition that that you put your finger on sort of deeply ingrained into our mindset you know it's become more deeply ingrained than even darwin might have imagined at this point in time at least at least that's that's my feeling about it. we have sort of the sure. it, it's like the darwin radicals or something you know well that, that's that's where we're going with this but and to your point and that's where i was going next darwin himself darwin never expected his theories to be the destination uh, and the theory to end all theories. They were built as a bridge, as a stepping stone, to move us out of the, the religious uh, explanations that, that didn't have any scientific basis. Darwin, a, a beautiful quote, Darwin's own words, he said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications he said my theory would absolutely break down right and he, he's saying this about himself his theories have broken down but our modern what i call mainstream science not the true science but the mainstream science will not allow darwin's theories to fall and that's where people like richard dawkins who, by the way is a philosopher uh and i think dawkins is is uh he's a, a brilliant man uh i i don't know that he's looking at all of the evidence, or if he's even aware of all the evidence that has shown up in the last few years when it comes to the genetic level. But Darwin himself expected his theories would fall, and mainstream isn't allowing that to happen. Yeah. And that's, that's where this idea of nature, sur based on survival of, of the strongest, that idea is such a dangerous idea, and it is so deeply entrenched into our world today. And the problem with the idea is that our, our own science no longer supports it. There were over 400 studies that were done in late, uh, late 20th, now early 21st century, and they were asking the same question. And the question was with regard to the nature of, of violent competition. Um, they a were asking what the optimum amount of competition is in any environment, in the classroom, the workplace, the playing field, uh, in, in the home. So I'm just going to if I can, a little aside here. I want to sure. say a few words about competition and then share what the studies are, are actually showing. When we think about competition, a lot of people say, well, you know, well, isn't competition a good thing? Uh, the answer is it can be. It de depends upon what form the competition takes. There are two different kinds of competition, and so I'm going to identify them very quickly right here. One form of competition is a, a form that, that biologists call violent competition, and this is where an individual or, or a community um, benefit at the expense of another. It's where an individual or a community exploit the weakness of another for their own gain. So that is a form of violent competition. There's another form of competition where an individual or a community excel at their given skills or with their given crafts because they develop them to the greatest degree possible. And by doing so, they make the other ways of doing things obsolete. So by them developing their own abilities and their own skills uh, to the greatest degree possible, uh, it doesn't make sense to do what they have learned to do in any other way. That is another form of competition. So when the scientists are asking, what is the optimal amount of competition? They're asking about violent competition. 
And all 400 studies, peer-reviewed studies, came back with the same answer, and the answer was zero. They said always, always, always violent competition is detrimental to the individual. It's detrimental to, to the group. That nature is based upon a model of what is called mutual aid and cooperation, not this idea of, of every man out for himself or every woman out for themselves and survival of the strongest. Now, in, in 2008, the very prestigious journal New Scientist uh, took this even one step further in a, a beautiful essay by a man named Richard LePage, April 2008. Uh, our listeners can Google this if they want to read it. But what he said is, and this is a quote, he said, what we see in the wild is not every animal out for itself. So that competition is a viable, a powerful strategy for survival, and that I'm sorry, cooperation is a viable, powerful strategy for survival, and that when cooperation breaks down, he said the results, the results could be disastrous, and that, that's the end of his quote. So this is modern science, peer-reviewed science, telling us that what we've been led to believe about the role of survival in nature, it works 180 degrees different than what we uh, were taught through Darwin's ideas of survival of the strongest. While there is competition and there is violent competition, and we all are simply, um, certainly we're aware of it, we see it. We see it in the human world, we see it in the animal world. That violent competition is in response to specific conditions. It is an aberration of the truest model of nature. And when we see a lot of violent competition, it tells us how far we've strayed from our relationship to the natural world if we're talking about humans. So we certainly are seeing a lot of that in the world today, and, and what it means is that we uh, have strayed very, very far from our truest relationship to one another in the natural world. Now. The scientists have taken this one step further. When we talk about humans, they say that, that humans will betray their truest nature when one or some combination of three conditions is present. Humans will betray their truest nature of cooperation and become violent when, number one, they feel that they're personally threatened. Number two, they feel that their families are threatened. Or number three, they feel that their way of life is threatened. So if we look at the hotspots in the world today where the, the great potential or the violence is actually occurring, what we see is at least one of these conditions, in most cases all three of them are present. And what it's telling us is that if, if we really want to get serious about bringing peace, peaceful solutions to the, the global hotspots in our world, at some point we've got to address these things. At some point, people must feel safe. They've got to feel their families are safe, and they've got to feel their way of life is safe. So I'm not saying what we've done in the past is right, wrong, good, or bad. I think we're on a, a huge learning curve, and the learning curve now is bringing us to these understandings. And if, if we truly uh, are going to, to bring viable, sustainable solutions to the crises we're seeing in the world uh, between people, I think these these discoveries and these understandings have to be made very very clear. Yeah, I think this, go ahead, go ahead. Go, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say that that in, in in tying this together, and I hope the listener could see 
that that this fits together because in and you can start from different standpoints for example you could start from the assumption that we're all separate creatures that there's that there's space that there's actually a absolute space between people that that the truth of life is that we're separate sort of robots as Richard Dawkins would say competing for survival like rock'em sock'em robots we want to be the the one left standing at the end but 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 what science is saying and I think what experience is showing that that is not correct that there is an underlying unity that consciousness involved and that cooperation or or togetherness morality is is the way of nature and, and it, it sounds a little bit like karma and it's or like the Tao there's all sorts of other principles that fit in here but 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 it, it goes to it you know it goes to how we make ourselves into a better world and and I think uh, Greg by you sort of highlighting these assumptions so clearly it, it, it brings them to the surface and it's saying folks science itself is questioning these assumptions in fact they're wrong <laughs> and so it's well, you know and so and so where do we go from here well they, they are and, and so that's uh, to tie these together the reason I wanted to mention the five there are other false assumptions by the way these are five key false assumptions that uh, that are uh, playing a, a pivotal role in in our lives today the things that are not working any longer the, the breakdown of the systems uh, the collapse of systems that we're seeing are those are the systems that are no longer sustainable in the, the, the present world and they are systems that are built upon these false assumptions There's a lot of good things happening in the world they don't cause the problems the, the problems come from the breakdown of familiar ways of, of thinking and and uh, uh, the systems we've known in the past. Now, I wanted just to, to go back to these false assumptions and, and share something really beautiful with our, our listeners that ties this together in, in such a, a poignant way. Uh, number five, Darwin told us that nature is based in survival of the strongest. Our own science now is showing us that that simply is not true. The data doesn't support it. If we go back to false assumption number two about civilization itself, the archaeology also no longer supports this idea uh, of nature being based upon survival of the strongest or that humans are inherently a warlike species. There is a uh, textbook that's being used in our classrooms, mainstream public classrooms today. The first sentence of the first page of the textbook makes a statement about war that I, I think is absolutely frightening. Uh, and the statement simply says that war is like trade or exchange. It's something that all humans do. Yeah. That's the end of that quote. Yeah. This is what our young people are being steeped yeah. in, the belief they're being steeped in. And, and I'm going to say this just one, one more time. Uh, the data simply doesn't support that. And the archaeology is bearing out what the biology is telling us. So I'm going to go back to false assumption number two, civilization. We've been taught civilization is... About 5,000 years old. I remember when I was in, uh, in college, I was asking our history professor. We were looking at a timeline of, uh, of history and civilization. I've actually included it in, in the book, Deep Truth. And it begins about 5,500 years ago. And, and I said, what happened to the left of that? You know, what happened before 5,500 years ago? And, and my teacher said, you know, nothing. Nothing happened. Don't waste your time. 
This is the history of the world for the last 5,000 years. Well, the, the problem with that is that our own peer-reviewed science, modern archaeology, is revealing not just one, but a number of archaeological sites, advanced archaeology. So, I mean, advanced civilization. So these aren't little primitive villages or, or huts, but these are, are sites where advanced civilizations existed, and they're now being dated over twice as old as, as this 5,000 years. So some of these I, I've personally uh, documented myself. In, in northern Peru, uh, for example, there is a, uh, a magnificent 150-acre site that is still, it's an active archaeological site, still being unearthed, but so far five pyramids, uh, three huge circular plazas, and evidence of astronomy and evidence of mathematics and the knowledge of astronomical cycles and huge cycles of time and the ability to record those cycles uh, in coded uh, matrices that we're only beginning to understand. That civilization, we're told that civilization began 5,000 years ago. That's when this civilization collapsed yeah. 5,000 years ago, and it existed for another 2,000 years before that. So this particular site is called Corral, C-A-R-A-L. Peru, it's mysterious. It is now accepted scientifically is the oldest advanced civilization in all of the Americas. It's older than the Inca, older than the Maya, older than the Aztec, than the Olmec, than the Tolmec. We don't know where they came from or or, uh, or where they went because they disappeared very, very suddenly as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that is one example of... Excuse me, one example of a civilization that, that doesn't fit the model. If it was only one, it could be an anomaly. So I'll just cut to the chase. Uh, the oldest advanced civilization now archaeologically accepted uh, in the world today is, uh, is in Turkey. It's a site called Gobekli Tepe. It is, they haven't even gotten to the bottom of the site yet. And the dating that they have before they even reach the bottom is between 11,200 and 11,500 years before present. So that's twice as old is what we've been led to believe that civilization, uh, the age of advanced civilization, and when they get to the bottom, archaeologists believe it's going to be right around 13,000 years before present. And there are others in between. There are sites in India. There are sites in other sites in Turkey, uh, certainly in Egypt, certainly in China. So the new sites are beginning to tell a new story, and that story is of a, a lineage of advanced civilization and the knowledge that's been perpetuated from one cycle to another uh, that goes back into the end of the last ice age. Now, we could talk a lot about this, but there's a reason I'm sharing this now. Because there's a mystery that is a common thread through all of these advanced civilizations older than 5,000 years. So if, if we'll recall, 5,000 years is the conventional wisdom. That's when we're taught that civilization began Interestingly, the first evidence of large-scale war to solve our problems is also documented about 5,000 years ago at the beginning of what we call uh, uh, this 5,000-year window of civilization. The mystery is that in all of these archaeological sites older than 5,000 years, they're advanced sites, but there's no evidence of any war. No weapons have been found. 
no evidence of the need to defend themselves from one another, no walls around the homes or the cities, no moats to protect them, uh, no uh, mass graves, uh, mutilated bodies that you would expect to see after large-scale war. Now, a growing number of archaeologists are beginning to actually write to document that war, uh, as we know it today, is not true human nature. It's not our nature to hurt one another and to destroy things, that war as we know it today is a habit. And it's a habit that began at the beginning of the cycle of civilization that we study in school 5,000 years ago. Prior to this time, uh, there were people, there were advanced civilizations, either we haven't found the weapons yet, which is possible. However, because so many sites have been found on so many continents, uh, I would think that in one of those sites we would have found the evidence of the weapons by now, and, and the fact that we haven't is leading uh, anthropologists and historians and archaeologists to suspect that war was not a part of these people's lives, that, that war is a habit that developed at the beginning of our cycle of civilization, and that suggests that if, if war is a habit that we learned, that it's also something that we can unlearn. And this is what brings everything full full circle. The new discoveries of biology are showing us that we are actually a cooperation, a cooperative species and that nature is based in the model of cooperation. The archaeology is bearing it out. In the ancient civilizations, our indigenous ancestors through oral traditions have always told us that we came from a time that was called the Golden Age, that we descended into a period of darkness, war, and suffering it began 5,000 years ago. And interestingly, this is the year, this is now the year 2012. Uh, at the end of this year, the close of, of a great cycle of time that the, the Mayans and other Mesoamericans identified, they say it, that's the end of the, the cycle of darkness. Whether or not we perpetuate these habits into the new cycle is being determined by the choices that we make right now. So now we look at the big picture. Here we are uh, at the end of a 5,000-year cycle facing the greatest number of crises ever to face a single generation, all converging in one window of time. They are the result of a way of thinking and a way of living that we now know is obsolete because the new discoveries are showing us that they're obsolete. The question is, will we embrace the deepest truths of our existence and apply those truths to the conditions of our world now, uh, if we're ever going to live what we claim to be the deepest truths, the spiritual truths of our heart, uh, of unity, cooperation, peace, mutual aid, uh, I can't think of a better time to do it, Philip, than, than right now. And that, that brings all of this together in, in a very relevant way in our lives and in a very beautiful way, uh, I think, as we begin to, to wind down our, our program today. Yeah, and I think I think that you put it very very well there, and you did bring it together because because we're talking about uh, disproving this assumption, as you point out, that war is somehow an innate feature of the human species, that it's like eating and sleeping, and 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 I thought that that quote that you gave was was very enlightening, because. Uh, you know, kids just can't be taught something like that. And and to open up the classrooms and say, well, let's let's go back to um, pre uh, 
Sumerian civilizations that we've now discovered. And guess what? War is not a basic feature of human existence. And that also ties it together, as you point out, with the new uh, twist on Darwinian evolution or on evolution as being a cooperative-based system. How about how war is not an intrinsic part of nature? Uh, how there really is a a a uh, unity to everything. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna ask one quick question because we're basically out sure. of time, and that is, do you think that we are at a tipping point here? Well, a tipping point is a point of no return. Right. And the multiple crises are converging into a single mega crisis that could possibly be that tipping point. But before you ever get to the tipping point, you have the opportunity, the turning points, to turn things around. And I think that's where we are right now. I think it's a time that I would call a, a time of graceful urgency. Yeah. Graceful means I think we've got the time we need to make the changes we need to make. Urgency means if we're going to do it, we need to do it right now. Yeah, and, 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 and that's where I think we are. It's, it's, it's this beautiful symmetry of the, the convergence of so many crises based uh, and resulting. It's a consequence of a way of thinking and living that's no longer sustainable. And just as those things are all collapsing, new discoveries are showing us where the thinking was incorrect and, right. and where we can make new choices. So the, the question now is, are we going to choose cooperation? to solve our problems, uh, are we going to choose competition? I think the question is much simpler than I've just made it sound. I think it's the question, are we going to choose love or are we going to choose fear? And I think it's in our faces right now, and I think we're going to come right down to the wire, uh, and I believe that this is the generation that will turn its back on the use of, of war, to large-scale war, to solve the problems because the purpose of war is now obsolete. We've outgrown the usefulness of war the way we've known it in the past. My experience, Philip, is that if, if we simply tell people what choices to make, that's where the resistance comes from. I know I don't like it, and uh, I know very few people that like to be told what to do, uh, and especially without any reasons behind it. However, if we can share the discoveries, what I've found is when the facts are clear, the choices become obvious. If we can share with people the, the facts, the deepest truths of our existence, then the, the choices that most people will make are the choices that are life-affirming choices. Uh, and we didn't have to convince or persuade anything, uh, anyone of anything. We simply shared uh, in an honoring, truthful, uh, honest, factual, and unbiased, non-political way. I think we just share the, the facts as, as we know them today. I think that's the best that we can hope to do. Yeah, and I think I think again I get I agree with you 100% because everybody needs to sort of go down this path themselves and think through these ideas, and and try to separate the facts from the rumors, the facts from the hypotheses or the guesses, and when we have uh, leading authorities questioning these fundamental assumptions and we and when we have Greg writing these books and others in this area who who lay it out so clearly it really tells all of us that the choice is really up to us we need to look we need to make these decisions we need to be part of what I hope will be a change in paradigm over time one where we bring together some of these 
concepts where we eliminate some of these unnecessary assumptions and we start leading lives more consistently with our true natures. Now, Greg, I'd like to thank you very much for your time. Uh, it, again, you were exactly right. The conversation went very fast, uh, but we cover a lot of ground. And, and I, and I, and I want to make sure that if, for those who don't know uh, uh, Greg Braden, just plug his name into Google and you'll see all of his books. And I highly recommend uh, many of his books. And, and the deep truth is a good place to start. Greg, is there anything you want to uh, say to conclude here? Well, I, I would say you can Google it or you can go right to the website. And there are, are video clips. There's a video library from, uh, from seminars, lectures, certainly all, all the books, um, tapes, uh, special features, and, and things are there, and a lot of good information. GregBraden.com. It's uh, Greg with two Gs, Braden, B-R-A-D-E-N.com. Uh, and, Philip, I just want to thank you for your... Uh, for being such a gracious host. I did love talking today to lay these foundations, and, uh, and you were very gracious to allow me to do that. Uh, thank you. It's the first time you and I have worked together on the air, and I enjoyed it. Uh, I look forward to the next time. And uh, thanks for your patience with all the technical glitches that uh, happened to get us to the point where we are today. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I well, want to thank all of, our, all of our listeners. I want to thank every one of you for making the time to, uh, to listen to these programs and for all you're doing to become better better people, the best people you can be, and create a better world. I think that's where it all begins. Yeah, and, and there's no stopping us if we, if we put our, our, our brains and our, our actions together, and I think that that's what I'm trying to do on the show, and, and I think that we all owe Greg um, a lot of credit for, again, surfacing these issues and being so clear and, and uh, articulate in your, in your presentation. So, once again, thank you. This is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, and we'll see you next week with Fred Allen Wolf. Take care. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Mirton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com.